0: This is part two of an episode called, but is it changing a wretch like me? Last time we talked about this incredible pressure around sexual purity. And we talked about a song by Acidies Byrne about the angst of getting stuck in a cycle of sinful behaviors. And I said, this episode, I'd give my view on addiction and compulsive behaviors. But to do that, we have to talk a bit about attachment. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. My name is Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist.
1: I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor.
0: And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shane Records. The world can be a painful place and perhaps the most effective way to deal with pain or uncomfortable emotions is through closeness with someone you feel connected to. But what if you don't have anyone that you feel connected to or anyone that can connect with you when you're sad or scared or in pain? Addiction often starts when we don't have secure relationships in our lives to help us do that.
2: Attachment and faith tell us that the deepest instinct in man is the longing for a felt sense of connection with parents, partners, and a loving God.
0: This is Sue Johnson, and she's the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy for Couples, an attachment-based therapy that helps couples increase security in their relationship. Also, this is the kind of therapy that I practice during the week. And she says that connection is deeply linked to our emotional well-being. When we feel like we're all alone in the world, we turn to things to help us manage our overwhelming emotions, like certain behaviors or substances. It's a secondary strategy, when we can't get the closeness that we long for.
2: Emotional isolation is inherently traumatizing for human beings. This longing becomes more acute when uncertainty and danger threaten us, but it's always there.
0: We always have this drive for connection, but it gets much stronger when we're in distress or danger. One aspect of a relationship you can rely on is that it brings a feeling of safety or security. Researchers call this a safe haven, that the relationship becomes a place you can go to when the world is overwhelming, a refuge. Like when you're a kid and you're sad or scared and you run to mom for a hug, you feel those emotions melt away as she holds you. That safe haven means that when we feel overwhelmed with any emotion, we can go and get help. We don't have to turn to a substance or behavior to help us calm down. We can find our calm through connection.
2: But let's just turn this safe haven idea into tangible science. I'm gonna tell you about a little study we did, a brain scan study. We put female partners in a brain scan machine, and we told them that when they saw an X in front of their face, there was about a 30-40% chance that they were going to be shocked on their ankles. I actually felt like a real psychologist for the first time ever because I got to shock people. Okay.
0: They did a brain scan to see how the physical shock impacted them in each of these contexts. They were wondering if the pain would be the same each time, or would having someone else present actually reduce the experience of pain. She explains that this shock sequence is administered in three contexts. First alone then with a stranger, then with a partner they feel emotionally close with. When they saw the ex, when they were alone or with a stranger, the brain scan showed that it registered as pain.
2: It was exactly the same when they were alone and with the stranger. Pain. It was exactly the same. But this time, when the ex appeared and they held their partner's hand, their brain stayed completely calm. and they reported that the shock was only uncomfortable. When the person was holding their partner's hand, who they now feel close and connected with, who's a safe haven for them, the threat comes and their brain stays calm. It changes how our brain perceives threat. Because danger, you cope with danger differently when you are emotionally alone or when the person you can depend on stands beside you. It's a whole different thing.
0: In other words, the connection with someone we feel secure with can really help us. Not only with uncomfortable feelings, but actual physical pain. That connection helps us calm down. Then she talks about another study.
2: Beautiful study on the results of 9-11 by an attachment researcher called Chris Fraley found that the people who said they had a secure bond, one secure bond, a person they could turn to and confide in and be held by and have be comforted by, they really seemed to deal with 9-11. These are people who were really in the area, close to the towers. They really seemed to deal with it very well. 18 months later, they were doing very well. Not so the people who said, well, maybe people were there for me, but no, they weren't, and I can deal with it on my own. Right? So this is very concrete at this point. Secure connection being able to turn to another and reach for them and get them to respond to you. Connection with a trusted other tranquilizes our nervous system and helps us find our balance in a stressful world.
0: So when we don't have that connection, it makes it much harder to navigate the storms of life So what do we do when we can't reach out for connection or when we feel like we can't? We have to find some other way to manage those emotions. We can look at porn or masturbate, like we talked about last time, or we can throw ourselves into work. We can calm ourselves through drinking or other substances or playing video games or going into deep rabbit holes on the internet for hours. There's probably a million other ways, some of them that we consider sin and some that we don't. All of these behaviors in the moment seem like our best strategy to soothe ourselves when we can't connect and get comfort from others. And this actually bears out in the research about addiction and trauma. One study found that 70% of youth who are treated for addiction to a substance had experienced trauma. And it makes so much sense. If you're living with incredible pain and you don't have people around you to help you get comfort, and then you discover something that helps you numb those feelings, of course you're gonna keep going back to it, even if you don't really want to. So much of the time, addiction has been framed as selfishness or pleasure. And I don't mean to dismiss the way that addiction harms people, both those that experience it and the people in their lives. But I find that this is often the best way to understand it. The research shows us that addiction is typically a way of dealing with trauma. It's the best strategy of managing an overwhelming experience of psychological pain. If we can find other ways to soothe ourselves and get support from others, we can find new ways of coping and connecting. But in the church, we've often understood these behaviors as selfishness or not loving God enough, or not understanding enough, or not feeling bad enough about those behaviors. Once, 12 years ago, at a church that I attended back then, I asked the pastors if I could lead a men's recovery group called Genesis Process to find support for addictive behaviors. They looked it over, deliberated, and told me that we couldn't do it at the church. Their reason? The curriculum didn't talk about sin enough. They believed these men in the group needed to be reminded that their behaviors were sinful. So what that means is these men who are coming to church on a Wednesday night because their behaviors were causing them shame and often causing problems in their marriages and other relationships needed to be reminded that these behaviors were sinful. And that is what would lead to change. So they said we couldn't do it. Genesis process, a program that is using Christian recovery centers and churches throughout the U S didn't talk about sin enough. but that's what we think will help. We think that telling ourselves it really is that bad will help, but that doesn't actually address the need that comes up when we engage in those behaviors. And when that need comes up, that feeling of overwhelm, of anxiety, or depression, or trauma triggers that says, I need to soothe myself in whatever way I can, that will always win out despite how much theological knowledge we have about sin. When we're in that space, we actually need help. We don't need someone to shame us, we need someone to come alongside us. But that's that's generally been our approach in the church. If you could really make yourself believe the true thing, that your sin is evil, and you could really mean it, then you would change. And I was thinking about Christian hardcore, making myself believe that I really am that bad. I really am a monster, then I'll change. And it made me think about part of the conversation I had with my friend, Forrest.
3: For a lot of us, it was like dealing with a lot of anger and shame and like rage. You know, you felt really terrible because you looked at pornography and hardcore music was a way to like express how angry I was at myself. For doing that, it seemed like sexual sin was different than all of the other sins, and it needed something more aggressive than, you know, worship songs to kind of purge yourself as a deer or something like that at church wasn't <laughs> enough. You know, I needed to, like, <laughs> I don't know, like, there needed to be more blood and guts.
0: To express how bad I felt about that what what do you think was the impact of listening to it I mean did you I guess I mean to mm-hmm. ask did you get what you hoped to get from it I think I at, at times yeah like it was
3: cathartic uh I think it also helped me dig into like some of that self-hate and stuff and continue to feel that bad about things yeah
0: yeah explain that a little bit more like,
3: I think it just became, like, reinfor- uh, like, reinforced how bad I felt about it, I guess. It was like somebody else was saying, yeah, it's that awful and we should feel like it's right that you hate yourself. You feel that, like, violently against who you are and what you've done, sort of a
0: thing. hmm Listening back to the interview, I thought, oh, I, I wish I'd asked Forrest if it helped him change his behaviors but I don't really need to. I know that for me, it resonated deeply and felt so cathartic. And yet beating myself up, calling myself a monster, it still didn't actually help me change the behavior. Thinking again about this song by As City's Burn, there's that part where he says, someone show me a hole in this cycle. Someone show me a hole in this cycle! Ah! He's feeling really stuck and he's calling out for help and no one is helping him. And it leads back to this question that I asked last time. Does Christianity offer us any concrete help when we're feeling really stuck? Before we go to that question, I wanted to tell you about the latest Patreon-only episode. I've talked a couple of times in this podcast about the Sounds Like charts. These charts in Christian music stores that would say, if you like this secular band, then you would like this Christian band. So Danielle and I found a chart online and decided to help you all find some better alternatives to the wretched secular music you've been listening to. And we asked the question, how good of a replacement is this? So if you love Panic! at the Disco, would you be happy listening to Audio Adrenaline? If you loved Pink, would Barlow Girl be a good alternative for you? And we also spent a little bit of time talking about where these Christian bands are now. Barlow Girl wrote lots of songs about being princesses. Maybe not lots, but a fair few. Mm. They each had their own like Princess Aurora. Ariel, Belle, like because they were all like sleeping beauties and like they didn't have to chase a man. Like if they were supposed to get married, God was going to bring them to them. So oh they man. were in like a deep sleep of rest. That's no white, That's none of the other ones. And one of them got married last fall. And I think that's it. The other ones aren't married? <laughs> I think so. That cannot be true. I'm not sure. They were like really big into like not dating and like purity and stuff. Well, me and... too.
3: And look at me. I got saddled with you <laughs> at a very young
0: age. I was the prince that
2: God <laughs> brought to you. After we're done with this, I am absolutely Googling if any of the Barlow girls got married besides one of them okay. last year. <laughs> Let's find out. Okay.
0: If you want to hear more and just hear us ramble about evangelical media from our childhood and adolescence, you can become a Patreon for $1.50 a month, $4 a month, or $8 a month and get those extra monthly episodes. Just follow the link in the show notes. So coming back to this question, does Christianity offer us any concrete help when we're struggling and when we're stuck and when we keep doing the thing that we don't want to keep doing? I talked to my friend Heather Patton Griffin about this. If you've been listening along, you heard her back in episode three when we were talking about self-hatred.
1: I would say certainly since the internet came out, pornography use is probably the biggest one. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's still lots of other like so I was a teenager in the nineties. My youth group used to shoplift a lot, like the generation before me. (laughs) <laughs> I was not into that. I was like the little over-controlled Christian girl. We were just very compulsive, period, compulsive in our relationships with God, like really overly anxious and earnest. A really high percentage of my youth group had eating disorders, hmm. including some of the boys. And, you know, of course, the normal things that teens go through in their dating relationships mm-hmm. you know, or, or our emotional struggles. So I was really deeply depressed for most of my teens, Mm. had a lot of childhood trauma and didn't know what to do with it, you know, didn't know how Jesus helped with that. Um, And I wanted help. And I, you know, I was in a church with really very kind people that certainly meant well, Mm -hmm. but their range was pretty limited in terms of what they could help you with. Hmm. And they wouldn't have known where to go for better help, or what that sort of help would have looked like. I, I, I think those internal struggles of torment are still what a lot of people go through today, you know, people that are younger than me. Internet pornography is so widely available,, you know, along with, you, know, weed, you know weed will just <laughs> calm you down, <laughs>
3: like <laughs>
1: alcohol, a great downer if you're, if you're anxious. Uh, also a depressant. <laughs> Mm So there's lots of things that we have access to, to help manage intense feelings when we are not able to connect with other people in ways that helps us process those things. Yeah. So there's a model of growth that uh, nobody would claim as their own, but this is functionally where a lot of people live in evangelicalism, not everybody But a lot of us would recognize this pattern, and I call it try harder to mean it more.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And the way we get stuck in try harder to mean it more is assuming that growth happens when I know the truth, I know the true Bible facts, I know the correct doctrine, and I believe it enough so that I can somehow access grace from the Holy Spirit um, and activate my willpower. And choose to obey. But if you don't have other things to rely on about how to connect with Jesus, how to troubleshoot when you're stuck, and you don't have people in your community to help you discern what is going on in your inner life, then that's going to cause a lot of problems. Um, And nobody means to do this to anybody. We just Mm -hmm. don't recognize what's going on. We don't slow down and listen. And we don't always have a lot of language for how God helps us when we're stuck. you're one of those kids that are like me that was just stuck i was trying to understand scripture i was trying to mean it so hard with all of my sincere faith and trying to obey but i was not experiencing a lot of transformation but you it's also confusing if you grow up in that world because there's always like those couple kids where it's working for them Mm -hmm. you know the, the the kids that seem to be flourishing life kind of opens up for them They seem to be getting better. They're not caught in endless anxiety. I remember as a teenager, I just couldn't understand what was different about them. And of course, like, what's the point of asking another (laughs) 15-year-old? In retrospect, I think they just had healthier families. So their experiences of connecting with their parents, their parents being relatively safe for struggles for for things that might make us feel shame. Their parents could help them repair and come back from that. So it wasn't like they were, like if they did something bad, they were just Mm -hmm. stuck in their secret shame and that was all they would ever be. So they had a very different range of experiences that our community was, was not able to name or help other people access if they weren't getting that in their families. We can get into this inner dynamic where it feels like we are being faithful and putting our uh, dying to ourselves and, and white-knuckle it you know, past whatever behavior we're looking to for comfort um, or escapism. So, and that'll work temporarily, mm-hmm. and you, you might get rewarded for it in your church system. But that doesn't work. When we can't get over things, when we're doing the best that we know how to do, with the tools available to us, you just keep on struggling and struggling and struggling, and it doesn't get better. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just feels like self-hatred, it feels like there is something wrong with me. You know and most people in that sort of situation are going to develop massive anger towards God and not know what to do with it. you know because if you don't if you don't have people working through anger towards God in your church community, that just feels like a terrible thing for any Christian to ever feel.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Of course, like, you know, God is good. That doesn't mean that we're not, (laughs) like, confused about our attachments to God or experiencing God in distorted ways, or that God is somehow surprised that we're angry. (laughs) This is not news to God. Maybe He knows how to help us with this, Mm -hmm. other than us just policing ourselves and beating ourselves up to just stop feeling that way. So if you have a simplistic model of growth... That if I know the true information about Jesus, and I mean it sincerely, I'm trying so hard to trust him, and you're not getting better, even though you know what to do, it just feels awful, and it's confusing. You know, I th- th- think most people are holding on to one or two experiences of connection with Jesus mm. that are vivid. And that kind of sustains them, but there's, there's a sense that, you know, maybe I would have that connection more if I wasn't so bad. When we have distorted shame, it just feels like there's something so bad about us that makes us unable to connect with God, unable to connect with the people around us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's miserable. Right. There's a line in the song that I think that says, there's, this is no place for the light of the world.
1: Yes. So it, it's a sense that in those parts of us that carry the things we're ashamed about or just hurting, that that space is inaccessible to God. That there's mm-hmm. something so awful about it that Jesus would not meet us there. Mm-hmm. And that we should be able to go to Jesus with what we already know. Mm-hmm. And if you're from a church community that doesn't let you feel a full range of feelings, (laughs) you know, know, that doesn't have ways of expressing lament or grief or anger, um, or doesn't even have real vocabulary for shame, let alone tools for how to repair if you do break your relationships and how to become somebody that won't do that again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Then we can talk about hope, 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 faith, faith, faith all the time, but that whole—what those professions of hope are often covering up tremendous despair. Hmm. We don't really think that Jesus can help us with these things. So we haven't seen him do it.
0: As we were talking, I was thinking about the last lines of the song, which goes, I don't want to know what I'd be without forgiveness brushing these adulterous lips. Which on the one hand acknowledges how much we need forgiveness. And on the other seems to say, the only help I can get from God is being forgiven. I can't actually hope to actually change. He's trying to get out of the cycle. He wants someone to come alongside him and rescue him. But the only hope he has is to be forgiven for the thing he keeps doing. There's no actual support for change or liberation.
1: And so when we're not getting better, it seems like when, you know, the best we can do is just loathe ourselves.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and eventually, maybe Jesus will zap us. And if, we're not, if, we, if we still don't get better, then we will reframe that as, well, some things just don't get taken care of this side of heaven. Mm-hmm. Which can be true in some circumstances, but people can be stuck for years and resign to it. Like, you know, you, you hear a lot of church communities where pornography use is so normalized, not because people approve of it, but they're just resigned to it. So you'll you'll hear pastors say, when wives come to them and say, look, my husband is just continually struggling with this. He's not emotionally connecting in our marriage. It causes a lot of shame. This has been going on for years. We don't know what to do. And the pastor says, well, you know, this is just the way men are. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that sucks for everybody.
0: <laughs>
1: you know? mm-hmm. um, you know, but because the men in the church are in leadership and they identify with each other, you know, they're not going to kick each other out for continuously struggling. They're, they're, they get that they're trying as hard as they possibly can. They're exhausted. Some of them have been struggling with this for decades at this point. Mm-hmm. And they don't know what else to do. But they know that they love Jesus Mm -hmm. they know that they're following as best they can the things that they were told to do when they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And they know that occasionally once somebody gets better, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they just don't know why it worked for that guy and it doesn't work for them.
0: In this point of the interview, I struggled for a minute with what to ask. I do that a lot, but I usually edit it out and make it sound smoother than it is. But here I really struggled to ask the question, not because I didn't know how to phrase it, but because I was afraid to ask it. So what do you think is, what is the hope that you would, what's the hope that might be, My, why am I saying this so tentatively?
1: <laughs> well, nobody wants to give false hope to people that have been struggling for decades.
0: Right, yeah. So I guess what I mean is, in your mind, what's the hope that, that God offers us in terms of change and transformation?
1: So what if the way that Jesus meets us is not by yelling at us? Is not by shaming us? What if Jesus knows all sorts of things about us that have contributed to our stuckness? that we haven't even considered. They're not on the radar for us. What if Jesus knows all the ways that we are actually afraid to connect to him? Because if you look at how we talk to ourselves when we're stuck, it's a pretty good gauge of how we think Jesus relates to us. So you talk to people with these deep struggles, there's different ways this plays out. A pretty common pattern is When people are stuck for a long time, they can have a hard time praying and they feel really bad about it. They can also have a hard time reading scripture. And that is, it feels, (laughs) that that, that adds to the despair when the only things your community tells you to do Mm -hmm. is to read your Bible and pray more. Mm -hmm. And your community doesn't tell you what to do you hear an angry voice when you read the Bible or you're bracing yourself when you pray because mm-hmm. you expect God to shame you the way you shame yourself and the way that people who have been trying to help you may have shamed you or scolded you to give you a pet, a pet talk. So you'd be a good boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what if faith is not about assenting to information? What if you build faith in God, the same way you build trust in every other relationship. What I try to give them is a model of us gradually coming to trust someone based on who they show us to be. And, and I, also walk, I also walk them through some prayers if they're up for it. So usually what I'll do is I'll be listening to what they're telling me about their internal life. And then if I think it's not going to be harmful for them, I'll just start praying as if I were them. And I'm going to start naming all the big, scary feelings that they think God is mad at them for feeling. So prayers that say, like, I don't know how to trust you fully. Mm. I hope that you're good. My experience of you, God, is that, like, I haven't actually seen a lot of goodness. I haven't actually seen a lot of the things that you said you were going to do in people's lives. I haven't seen them in my life or in anybody's life that I know. (laughs) Except for that one guy, where it always works for him, but it hasn't worked for me. Um, If people can be honest about, we have lots of doubt, we have lots of anger and frustration and disappointment towards God, and we don't know what to do, and we can't keep ramping ourselves up to trust God more. standard example of something that I would pray.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Right. So Jesus, I am so tired. I am so tired of trying. I have done everything I know how to do for years and it's not getting better. And I want to love you, but it feels like I must love these other things more because I keep on coming back to them. And nothing that I do seems to work. And parts of me really hate myself. And I'm afraid that you hate me too. And I'm really mad at you. I'm really mad at you that I've tried so hard and this hasn't gotten better. And I don't want to read scripture sometimes because I'm tired of hearing about all these great things that never happen to me or anybody that I know. I'm just exhausted. And I've been told my entire life that I already have everything that I need, but maybe I don't. So it is really hard for me to open myself up to trust you again, because I've done this over and over and over. and the more that I hope, the more I'm disappointed when it doesn't work. So I don't know how to get out of this. So I don't, I'm not going to try and force myself to trust you with the whole thing. Could you expand my range of trust a couple inches <laughs> the next few weeks? can, can we build, Can we get to know each other again? Because I can't tell the real you from this you in my head that is always disappointed in me. And if that's not the real you, I would love for that guy to be gone. So can you begin moving in my life in a way that I can receive in the next few weeks? Could you move in a way that is not about me trying to force myself to believe you? Could you move in a way where I can see you reaching for me? And I you know, I know that like I have all these ways that I protect myself from disappointment. And I'm afraid you're going to disappoint me. So could you just find a back door? Can you find some way to get through to me that I can receive? That will help me feel a little bit safer with you. And could you, could you begin moving in my life in ways that build some hope that maybe you're better than what I've come to expect? So theologically, I know all these things about you. I do not connect with them at all. There was that one time at youth camp, (laughs) but other than that, it doesn't seem real to me. And people have told me, you know, don't trust your feelings, trust God's word, but I need something other than just shutting down my feelings. Mm -hmm. So can you help me? Can you help me? I don't know how to trust you here and I want to, but I need to know a different Jesus than what I've been trying to worship.
0: This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find all the links to those in the description of this episode. You can support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. We've talked about things like Brio Magazine, Wow1999, and a lot of other throwbacks to evangelical culture. DL's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening.